You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Kings 18, 1 through 20. Um, If you would, please turn there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and your scripture reading is on page 318. If you need to flip there quickly in the New Testament. Again, 1 Kings 18, 1 through 20. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. If you're able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? First Kings 18, 1 through 20. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, He would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, excuse me, has it not been told my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? 
And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to meet at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're glad you're here, especially if you're um, visiting with us. I know there's a lot of Wake Forest students and a lot of freshman Wake Forest students, and um, if you're here uh, and you're a student uh, or even someone who's younger, um, you're really beating the odds because uh, we live in a time where young people are leaving the church uh, in great numbers. Since uh, 2000, 40 million, 40 million Americans have left the church. And uh, there was a book called The, the De-Churching of America. And uh, they're, not, they're not leaving into atheism. So the, the friends of yours that have left the faith, they probably didn't become atheists or secular humanists. Most of them are becoming pagan, which is just another word for worshiping uh, other gods, uh, strange gods. Um, there's a book called Strange Rites, and that's R-I-T-E-S, Strange Rites by Tara Burton. And she talks about some of the strange rights that a lot of Americans are moving towards who aren't particularly, uh, they're not institutionally Christian, but they still believe in God. And she mentions astrology, which is really on the rise, witchcraft, um, soul cycle, which I had never heard of, soul cycle, alt-right nationalism, she puts that in that camp, uh, social justice activism, she would say is also part of this, uh, techno-utopians, uh, transhumanism, wellness junkies. She goes on and on. The book is just one story after another of Americans who have moved out of institutional religion and into these strange rites. And in 900 BC, um, in Israel, they had become so pagan that the king of Israel, who was supposed to be a worshiper of Yahweh and lead the people in the worship of Yahweh, he had actually started to kill anyone who believed in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so they were in much, much worse shape than we're in today. And Elijah doesn't come and whine about the good old 90s. Uh, he doesn't have this posture of grievance. Uh, he, he simply comes and he quietly and confidently confronts the king and invites him to repent, to repent from the emptiness of paganism and worshiping Baal, the god of the Canaanites. And he calls him back into the life of Yahweh. And the reason that there's a famine in the land is because Yahweh is not going to bring rain uh, until the people realize that their spiritual lives are dry and dying and desiccated. And they, they need this, the life of God back into their souls. And so he's going to end the rain uh, when the people repent and turn back to Yahweh. So I want to look at um, two things. Number one, the emptiness of Baal, of paganism, uh, the death, the death of... Um, the perishing, the, one of the words the Bible uses most of all for people who are not believers, that they are perishing, which means that, like, imagine a piece of ripe fruit that is perishing and literally decayed. Um, that's the word the Bible uses most of all for people who are not believers, that they're perishing. And that's because not worshiping Yahweh 
uh, you begin to lose touch with life itself. So first of all, the emptiness of Baal and death, which Elijah calls out, and then the fullness of life that we can have if we worship Yahweh, the true God. So uh, first of all, the emptiness of Baal, is, again, it's 900 BC. Now, if you know anything about Israelite history, they were once a united country, and then the north seceded from the south. So it's the opposite of the American Confederacy, where the south seceded from the north and went rogue. In Israel, the north went rogue. And they basically kind of left uh, true Israel. And they set up a fake king. And if you know any, uh, any history of uh, European history, you know there was, a, there was one time a pope uh, in France decided that he was going to be the alternate pope to the one that's down in Rome. So it was like a second papacy. And uh, that's kind of like what Ahab was. He was a fake king. He was not the real king. The real king was still in Jerusalem. But he set up a, a fake kingdom from Samaria. He was going to rule uh, his fake Israel from his fake capital as a fake king. And um, Ahab of the fake kings was the very worst of all. And it's very interesting that, uh, that God did not send Elijah to uh, the country that was in good shape. He sent him to the country that was in bad shape. In fact, there is no other place in the Old Testament where so many signs and wonders are done other than the Exodus. There's no other place in the Old Testament where you have all these signs and wonders and miracle stories and supernatural activity. It's only when the north has gone so rogue that God has to send them a prophet who will bring them back through powerful signs and wonders, which shows how much God loves people outside of the church so deeply, so deeply. And Ahab was so bad that he married uh, Jezebel, who was like a, a jihadist for Baal. You know, she, she actively wanted any believer in Yahweh to die. So it says in verse 4, Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord. That means she killed them. And so imagine uh, a spiritual genocide uh, like what's happening right now uh, in Western China that uh, the press doesn't cover nearly enough, but there, there is something going on there not too dissimilar from the Holocaust, where Muslim Chinese called the Uyghurs are being systematically killed, um, just like Jezebel was doing to the prophets of the Lord. So you have these prophets, be, every believer in, in Yahweh is being killed, and anyone who worships him is being hidden in caves. You know, kind of like um, in, in Europe, you know, Corey Tinboom hiding people, uh, the hiding place in her closet in houses. So they're hiding people in caves, they're eating bread and water. And meanwhile, the priests of Baal are living the high life, which Elijah calls this out. He points this out to King Ahab. Just, just you know, for the record, Ahab, I know that there, this is verse 19, there are 450 prophets of Baal. And there are 400 prophets of Asherah. That's the female counterpart to Baal. And they are eating at the king's table. They're eating at Jezebel's table. So I know what's going on uh, in, in the palace of Samaria. And Elijah's like, there are 400 and, and 850 federally funded uh, religious leaders and gurus who are working for the king. And what are they, what do you think they're doing? What do prophets of Baal and Asherah do? Um, well, they are luring Israel into these bizarre mysteries and these strange rites. And archaeologists have found in this period of uh, Israel's history, in this area of Israel, multiple idols and statues with exaggerated reproductive organs. I'll put it that way. And what you did is you joined in, and a worshiper would join in 
the, the divine copulation between Baal and Asher, the two gods. And when they came together, male and female gods, um, they would cause fertility to happen. And so you as a worshiper were brought in to uh, imitate with one of the uh, people in the shrine, whether male or female, the, the Asherah figure or the Baal figure. You, you join them in these divine rites. So it's like a brothel and a temple all together. And you, imagine, you can imagine that a man invented you know, this kind of religion. And they say that if you participate in these rites, uh, then Baal will bring life to Israel. Then the rain will come, there will be grain, the wheat fields will grow, there will be, there will be the vines will, will flourish, you'll have wine, you'll have bread, there will be animals born, uh, babies will be born, everything will go right if you just join in uh, the pagan rites of Baal and Asherah. And I know it's hard to imagine worshiping sex and wealth and family, but they actually did that back then. And, uh, you know, we have our own cult of fertility, as I've heard uh, one commentator put it in America, the cult of fertility, which is part of the evangelical church, uh, the sexual prosperity gospel, if you will, where, like, if you stay chaste, then marital intimacy will be perfect, will be unbelievable. And everybody's got to be moving towards marriage in a relationship, and if you're not doing that, there's kind of something off about you. You know, when I first got married, um, I thought that my desires were just going to be instantly purified and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, because now I'm married. Everything was off limits before, and now that I'm married, everything is on limits, and so everything's going to be purified, and I can tell you that is not the case. And the marriage bed does not become holy, and all your desires as a husband do not become sacrosanct, that you have the right to whenever you want. That is not the way it works. And I was assuming that all these good desires that I had would be fulfilled in children being born, when I wanted them to be born, and how many I wanted born. And uh, it would be two children with solid jobs who would have grandchildren, and they would have, we would go on these dream vacations to Polly's Island and Emerald Isle with them, and we would have family photos on the beach in khaki and Carolina blue. You know, you might have gotten, I know some of you have done that and sent them to me, so this is no judgment there, but um, that was kind of my, in my head, the cult of fertility. And Elijah would come along and say to me, um, verse 18, you have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed after Baal. And the American church has done that. And we have convinced our culture that you've got to have this stuff because we've got this stuff. And you see what happens when you enter into the cult of fertility in verse 5. Uh, there's death that starts to occur, spiritual death. And in verse 5, King Ahab tells Obadiah, who's like the CFO of Israel, he says, uh, let's go throughout the land to all the places that were springs of water beforehand and to all the valleys, and maybe we'll find grass, and maybe we'll save the horses, and maybe we'll save the mules, because they're dying, because they're worshiping Baal. And you can picture the grass going from green to yellow to brown, as we, you know, we swipe around for our partners, which we have to have, we have to be in a relationship, we rush around to our kids' activities because they're the center of our lives. And it's spiritual death. It saps you of your spiritual life. Um, many people have been intimidated by our church, um, and they have said that they won't even invite friends here. 
because they're intimidated by this. And this is, you gotta be careful because this is a place you can feel shame. I don't want you to feel any shame, but people have said, we're a very wealthy church, we're very well educated, people are very fit here, a lot of foodies here, fine homes, phenomenal children, everything looks great. And so they're like, I can't stay or I won't come. And again, none of that is anything to be ashamed of. So if you're well-educated, wealthy, fit, you love good food, you have a fine home and great children, you're fine. But we cannot let that be our witness to the greatness of Christ. We have to actually uh, repent of that as a witness and say, no, that's not what it means to be a Christian. That's not what it means to follow Yahweh. That's not what life is. Life is when you actually are in an intimate relationship with Jesus and you are living with him every day, talking to him, enjoying his fellowship, enjoying his presence, making time for him, worshiping him, being with his people. Um, that's what life is. And that's now point two, Yahweh's fullness of life. He says, I will send rain upon the earth. So I've still got this. You know, I'm, I'm going to bring my rain, but first the people have got to repent. They've got to realize before I bring the rain that Baal did not bring the rain that Asherah did not bring the rain, that I bring the rain, because you're in connection with me again. He's not being mean. They, they need to not have any rain until they repent of Baal worship. So he's going to restore the fertility, but they've got to repent of demanding fertility. So, verse 2. Uh, Elijah was, was up in uh, Sidon, which is a pagan territory. God sent him up there uh, to bring life to a widow, who was a pagan widow, and her son, raised the son back from the dead, kept the family alive. That shows how much Yahweh cares about this pagan widow, the most vulnerable member of you know, the pagan society. And yet he sends Elijah up there to care for that widow and her son, brings the son back to life when he dies. Now, verse 2, Elijah has left Sidon, and, and God has told him to go and show himself to King Ahab. And that's got to create fear. You know, his body must have flooded with fear when he heard that because he's, he knows that Ahab wants to kill him, but he's so obedient to the Lord that he goes. He goes back, he leaves Sidon, goes to Samaria to talk to King Ahab. And he's walking back, which was a witness in itself to the life of Yahweh. He wouldn't have walked back unless he had believed that there was life beyond death, which he had just seen because that widow's son had been raised from the dead. And so Elijah walking towards Ahab is a sign already that there was fullness of life in Yahweh. And there is life beyond death, and you don't have to fear death. And then in verse 7, Elijah, you know, is walking this way, and Obadiah is over here looking for the horses and the mules and the springs, and, they, and then they run into each other. You know, a divine appointment, a coincidence. And there's Obadiah, and he's inspecting the fields, and he looks off, and he's, it says, there was Elijah. And Obadiah knows who Elijah is, because he knows that his boss is trying to kill Elijah everywhere. Um, and Obadiah was a double agent in the stronghold of Baal. So if you've seen The Night Manager, which is one of my favorite TV series, um, and The Night Manager, Tom Hiddleston, is like this, uh, the right-hand man of Hugh Laurie, who's a, a drug dealer and a, like a weapons, a sell, seller of weapons, arms dealer. This horrible man, Hugh Laurie's this horrible man. And, and Tom Hiddleston is working for, you know, the British intelligence as the number two man for uh, Hugh Laurie, who is, he's trying to turn in. So you're on the edge of your seat the whole time. And that's exactly what, that's what Obadiah is. This is a courageous man. There's a guy named Bob Fu, uh, F-U, uh, and he uh, converted after the Tiananmen Square massacre. And he 
taught Communist Party officials in the daytime, and then he would go at night and pastor a house church. And he was always in danger of dying because he never knew quite where he stood. And that's what Obadiah is. So this is a brave man. Keep that in mind as we read this next part. This is a man of faith. But, verse 7 says, when he saw Elijah, he fell on his face and he said, is it you, my Lord Elijah? And there is trepidation in his voice as he says that. Uh, and Elijah is a man of very few words. So he simply says, it is I. Go and tell Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. And, you know, again, Obadiah is a brave man, but this uh, leads to one of the biggest tantrums in the Bible. You know, he completely freaks out. And he says, verse 9, what did I ever do to you, Elijah, that you would send me to die at the hands of Ahab? He can't believe that Elijah would ask to do this. Verse 10, he continues, Ahab searching every inch of every nation on earth to find you, and you want me to tell him that you're here? And then Elijah just kind of keeps staring at him. And then verse 11, as soon as I tell him, the spirit will whisk you away and Ahab will kill me. So he's like pacing around. He's running his hands through his hair. Verse 13, has no one told you I hid 100 prophets of God? Are you seriously asking me to tell Ahab you're here? So he is completely losing it. And it helps me. It helps me to know that he is because I do. And you do too. We all just get flooded with fear. Even though we believe, you know, maybe it's a test or exam or um, first day of school, uh, lunchroom, uh, it's, easy to, it's easy to freak out. Obadiah freak. This is a man of faith. And it's so good to know that if Obadiah is doing that, then we have permission to do that too. And we can still be people of faith and have these kind of, we just lose it completely, which he's doing. And when we lose it, Yahweh will send friends to us that will call us back to sanity. He always does. One of the great things about friends. So verse 15, I love what Elijah says. He says, I am Elijah. I stand before the face of the living God. Sounds like Gandalf there. Um, you know, but then his voice softens. Um, he says, Obadiah, I will not leave you. I will surely show myself to Ahab. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to leave you hanging where, you know, Ahab kills you because I have suddenly been whisked away by the Spirit. I, I will be there. Um, and sure enough, Elijah does not move an inch. He just stands there like a fence post. He just stands there. You know, I can, I can imagine that um, as they see Ahab on the, on the horizon, you know, in, in kind of a dust cloud behind him in his chariot, he's, he's kind of coming towards them in his chariot with his war horses and all of his army barreling down on them. I can imagine Obadiah like runs behind a bush as Ahab is screaming in verse 17, is it you troubler of Israel? And I used to imagine that Elijah was kind of, you know, had his arms crossed and scowling and kind of belligerent you know, like Chris Christie in the Republican debate, if you saw him. And uh, now I imagine him more like Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, with the hood on, Alec Guinness, calm British accent, um, not belligerent, not angry, um, calling him to repentance confidently, quietly. And he simply says, uh, let's be honest here, I have not troubled Israel, you have. You're the one who's bringing all this death to Israel by leading them in the worship of the balls. And it's so, it's so gracious. I mean, there's Elijah knowing he could die. He has no weapon. 
And Ahab's all, all these weapons, all these soldiers that could kill him easily. All Elijah has is the word of God. And he is standing there risking his life to offer repentance to the man who's trying to kill him. And that's also, a, that's a sign of this, the fullness of life that Elijah has. That's what it looks like to have a full life, where you're not afraid. And you're standing there offering this, one of the greatest gifts we can offer to anyone, which is the offer of repentance. I will tell you the truth about yourself that you don't want to hear, and I will bear the consequences of that because I love you so much. That's what Elijah's doing. And that's what we should do with each other. We need to tell each other, you need to repent of the cult of fertility. This is not where you find life. This is not the place that you find who you are. You know, only Jesus can give you what you're looking for in romance. We need to tell each other that. Only Jesus can cure the loneliness that you are looking for in marriage because it will not cure the loneliness. And only he can bring you the safety and the warmth that you're looking for in a family. That this family, the church, is the real family. This is the spiritual, eternal family of God that was <clears throat> created from before the foundation of the world. Your nuclear biological family is great, but this is the real thing. And Jesus offers this to everyone. He says, this is my church. Everyone's welcome here. And God not only offers the gift of repentance to Ahab and to all of Israel, but he makes it incredibly easy for them to repent. This is not rocket science. He's not playing hard to get. He stoops down to our level. He, he looks us in the eyes. He, he holds our face, you know, in, our, in his hands. Like, look at me. <clears throat> Verse 19, uh, gather all Israel at Mount Carmel. This is God speaking through Elijah to Ahab. God says, okay, uh, gather all of Israel uh, at Mount Carmel, uh, this gigantic mountain in northern Israel. That is Baal's home court. That's where uh, he reigns, supposedly. So he's got home court advantage. And get, get the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. So it's, it's 850 to 1 odds. And he's like, I will make it very clear on Mount Carmel who, who is the real God. So this repentance thing will be very easy for you. It's not going to be hard to figure out who the real God is. It's going to be 850 to 1 on Baal's home court and I am going to tie both hands behind my back and still show you that I have life and he does not. That's what, that's what, the, that's what the next chapter, is, the next story is going to be about. This amazing showdown, you know, at the OK Corral between Yahweh and Baal. Uh, so, so come back next week. It's an amazing passage. Um, Elijah risks his life to invite his enemies into the life of God through these massive signs and wonders that we're about to see next week. And that's almost what Jesus did. Jesus didn't risk his life to invite his enemies. He actually gave his life. He actually did die to invite all of his enemies into the life of God through this mighty sign and wonder, which was his death and resurrection. And we celebrate that now. Every Sunday at our church, we... Um, we come to this table because, as Austin was saying um, just before church, this is the penultimate event in the worship service. That's the ultimate event. And this is all pointing to that because that's the Lord. And I could screw up the sermon completely and we would still come to his table because that's where the grace is found. That's where the word becomes actually physical. And if you fell asleep during the sermon, you won't fall asleep when you're eating that and drinking that. Um, because it's, it's so concrete. And um, 
You know, I want you to know that uh, this meal is not for people who come to this church. It's not for Presbyterians. It's not for uh, evangelicals. It's not for Protestants. Uh, you don't really know, have to know what you are as long as you believe in Jesus and want Jesus and are repenting uh, of false gods, repenting of idols. If, you, if that's you, then come and partake. Uh, if, that's, uh, if that's not you, we're glad you're here, but it doesn't make any sense to just go through the motions and do something that you don't really believe in. So uh, feel free to not partake. Uh, but on the night he was betrayed... when everybody said, Hosanna to the son of David, and they waved their palm branches and they hailed him as king. It was not on that night uh, that uh, he died for us. It was on the night he was betrayed to show that if he loved you at that moment, when you betray him the most, just think about the moment of your greatest sin in your whole life, where you felt like you did something most repulsive to God. And he's like, that's where I love you the most. That's what this is about. On the night he was betrayed, That was the night where he took the bread and he broke it. He said, as you betray me, I give myself for you. Nothing can separate you from my love. If while you were my enemy, I died for you, how much more now that you're my friend am I going to save you? You can't lose your salvation. If you could lose your salvation, I would have lost mine a long time ago. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so whenever we eat from the bread and drink from the cup, we're proclaiming once again that the Lord has died for us and he was raised for us. He ascended for us and he's coming again. We preach the good news. So let me pray for us as we come to this table. Father, we uh, pray that we would experience the life of God, the life of the world, coming down, flowing down through the wounds of Christ, through his broken body, his shed blood, that uh, everyone who comes up here would just receive that jolt of life, that is communion and fellowship with you. They would repent of the cult of fertility, the prosperity gospel, worshiping wealth, and children and family and sex, and that we would turn to you as the place we can get real life. That's where real life is found. And we pray that as we take this meal, we would experience that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Remember, we love these rascals.